Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your Holy Scriptures, which are to us um, spiritual um, milk and bread, even meat, whereby we um, feast on, uh, by Your grace, our Lord Jesus Christ, and we uh, long to grow up into Him. We ask that You would bless Your Word now as it has been read and also as it is proclaimed. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. All week I was struggling on how to illustrate verse 12 in uh, our passage. And uh, last evening when my wife got home, as we were talking and we she was telling me about one well she was telling me about uh, several of the um, the seminars that she went to at the homeschooling conference that she attended this weekend but she she told me of one and I thought you know maybe there's a way to illustrate uh verse 12 and what she was telling me so I did what uh what really scares me, and that is rewrite the first part of my sermon uh, early this morning. Um, in order to illustrate verse 12, where I was having a hard time illustrating it, but secondly, it does seem to me, uh, as a father of teenage children, that um, this, what I'm going to say, may, may be helpful to to uh, you, it certainly was helpful to me as I was thinking through what my wife was telling me last night about this one seminar that she attended. As the father of teenage children, I am well aware, or I can even say painfully aware, of many of the things that are placed before our children that seem so enticing. Our culture places before our children many sets of ideals that are simply unsustainable and impractical. Some of the ideals are not just unsustainable and impractical, they're downright unwise and immoral. Yet because they're presented as ideals, there's an expectation placed upon the children that they are immoral if they do not embrace these ideals. And the pressure to conform can be very subtle yet also very powerful. For example, I'm sure you're familiar with the movement on the college campuses to make the college campuses, to make the entire campus a safe place or a safe space where students can be protected from any opinions that they disagree with. Uh, the latest examples include students waking up in the morning and as they walk to class, they come upon chalk messages written on the sidewalk. And uh, there are messages written on the sidewalk that threaten them. The messages say things like, Make America Great Again, Trump 2016. <laughs> and when this, is, when this happened at Emory University in Atlanta, the students, just by seeing this, they said things like, and I quote uh, a few of the students, I legitimately feared for my life. 
It made me feel pain. Another student said, I had no idea. I went to school with people who had opinions that were different than me. And it terrifies me. Then there's the ideal that is being raised of, of a human right for free college education for all. Um, that's actually being debated, I think, at, um, in the, the presidential campaigns. There's also the transgender bathroom issue and the redefinition of marriage. And we could go on and on. And when parents or others try to address these issues, the first um, line of defense is you don't have any right to judge. Since it's an ideal, to disagree with an ideal is to be judgmental and closed-minded. I took my family to New York City for vacation a few summers ago. And while we were in Central Park, one of my daughters struck up a conversation with young people that were riding skateboards in the park. Nothing wrong with that. But then my daughter announced to my wife and I that we could go on, we could go visit other parts of the city, but she was going to hang out with these young people for a while. Um, and these, these young people were about five or six boys and a couple of girls. Uh, about her age, I distinctly remember very patiently yet firmly saying that that was not going to happen. And so I got the... You were judging them because they dress differently than the way people in Florida dress. I can honestly say if those young people had been dressed in school uniforms from a PCA, Presbyterian Church in America, Christian school, I would not have let my daughter stay with these young people that we did not know and go off to another part of New York City and let her stay in Central Park. I start this sermon for two reasons, this way for two reasons. First of all, as I said, I needed a way to illustrate the reaction that many give to Paul's statement in verse 12. And then secondly, I know that there are many parents in the same boat as me and Mandy. Our children are raised with many pressures to conform to the status quo. And I think it is helpful for parents to know we're all in this together. That, uh, that we're not just, uh, our family is not just an island out there floating by ourselves. I want to speak to the young people for a moment. Young people, have you given due consideration that every generation of young people think just as you are now thinking? You know, when I was young, my parents were wringing their hands over my youthful idealism. Um, I accused my parents of being judgmental. I thought my parents were crazy and unreasonable. And my parents' parents thought that they were that their parents were judgmental. They thought they were prudes. And my parents' parents were raised in the uh, 40s and 50s. Each 
generation, as they get older, however, their thinking changes. Think this through for a second. If every generation of older people, or I'm sorry, of young people thinks that their parents are prudes and are judgmental and closed-minded and unreasonable, what happens to those young people when they grow up to be parents and all of a sudden their thinking changes? Why does that happen? Well, I would say maturity. I would say experience. I would say also becoming parents. And I would add also that this idea of charging your parents as being unreasonable, as being judgmental, as being closed-minded, as being behind the times, that it's a little bit manipulative to make that charge. Because in so doing, you're playing the guilt of your parents and uh, trying to, to, to get your way is my experience and frankly the, the experience I think of every generation. And young people, it will happen to you too. You will grow up. You will grow in maturity. You will grow in experience. You will have children. In fact, I think my own children will likely be more protective than my wife and me because they will be so horrified by what they've experienced as young people raised in this culture. Young people, I want you to consider that these ideals put forward by our culture and the charges of judgmentalism are simply legalistic excuses to try and build a moral foundation for the things that cannot otherwise be said to be wise or moral. And parents, I've noticed that when push comes to shove, when it seems like children are wanting to go in a different direction, I've noticed uh, from myself being a parent that my children are tethered to the triune God. They always seem to come back to God. Uh, they have certainly stretched the rope tight as they have groped to be a part of the culture. But the rope is the cord of God's grace. It's His grip on them. And I've had to have my wife tell me on many occasions to remind me of that and me tell her. It is His covenant promises that are written in the blood of our Savior Jesus Christ that will ultimately hold our children not just their growth and maturity or an experience. That being said, it's not only the young people who are influenced by our culture's way of thinking. As adults, we have, a, we have more cultural influence than we might readily uh, recognize ourselves. Things that we think are not so, or things that we think are so, are not necessarily so. One of the most difficult things that Paul says in all of his letters is found here in our passage. In fact, this whole passage is a very difficult passage. But verse 12 is one of the most difficult things that he says. So listen to verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin so that death spread to all men because all sinned. 
what Paul is saying here is that death is part of the human experience. Well, everybody agrees with that. Everybody must agree with that. Otherwise, you're not living in reality. Death is a part of the human experience. And then Paul gives an explanation for where death came from. Death came into the world through one man's sin. Adam sinned. Therefore, he died spiritually in keeping with God's um, uh, warning to him that he must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The moment he, he ate um, the uh, fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he died spiritually. And through him, then death entered into the world. I would suppose most Christians, I would suppose most of you this morning would readily agree with that. But then his final statement in verse 12 throws not only non-Christians out in the world, but even many Christians for a loop. Paul says that death is spread to the whole human race because the whole human race sinned in Adam. Paul's not saying that you became like Adam. Um, No, he's saying that you and me All humanity that's descended from Him is guilty of His sin. He is saying that you are guilty of His sin. To make it more clear, verse 12 teaches that the whole human race sinned in one single past action. You and I are guilty of Adam's sin. And this is not up for interpretations. Uh, Paul is very clear about this phrase. The phrase in question in Greek reads, um, Pontes Hamarton. Uh, it means all sins. Hamarton is in the aorist tense in the Greek. This means it's a simple past tense. When I get in, my Greek's pretty strong on the aorist past tense. When I get into the participles in, in uh, Romans 7, I'll struggle a little bit. But the aorist tense in Romans 5 and also Romans 6, we'll see next week, is very important. It's simple past tense. The Greek language is the language of the philosophers Plato, Aristotle, Socrates. And so it's a very precise language. And so this aorist, means past tense, but it's a precise past tense. It is, some, it is a point in time that happened in the past. It doesn't have a continuing action. It is a point in time. And what Paul is saying is that all, all of us, all humanity descended from Him, sinned in Him in one past moment. Well, when was that past moment? If you want to read about it, you can read about it in Genesis chapter 3. This is the Bible's answer to why you and I, if the Lord Jesus doesn't come back first, why you and I will one day die. This is the Bible's answer to why you are guilty of Adam's sin. Or rather, this is the Bible's answer to why you sin now. Because you are guilty of Adam's sin. You will die one day because you are guilty of Adam's sin. This is why each person that is born into the world is born a sinner. 
Because all are guilty of Adam's sin. That's why disease and death reign over nice people as well as um, cruel people. Sorry, I could say nice people, cruel people. But uh, don't mean to cast aspersions. Um, but that's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin and not a descendant of Adam. So that Adam's sin would not be charged to him as well. And so, the reason why I brought up the young people and the worldviews and things and 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 uh, what the guy who discipled me he used to call it stinking thinking. Uh, the reason why I brought up the stinking thinking is that young people and old people alike typically say at this point when we say that you are guilty of Adam's sin. The response is, that's not fair. It does sound repugnant to modern Western ears because we're very individualistic. We're part of the Western culture. Tim Keller says, in the West, each person is an island, interconnected, but rising or falling, succeeding or failing according to our own actions and decisions and abilities. In other words, Western people see humanity uh, made up of mainly individual autonomous units. Each individual is responsible for themselves according to Western culture. And so to hear that you are responsible for Adam's sin before you were even born, it sounds unfair. But in spite of the pervasiveness of the Western worldview, the Bible presents a different view. The Bible says that humanity is a solidarity. That Adam was the representative head of all humanity. And his sin was imputed or counted against you as well. You are guilty of his sin because you as an individual are part of the whole human family of which Adam was the head and the representative. So I think you can see where Western thinking objects to the Bible's view of humanity. We Westerners dislike the idea of someone standing in our place. We like to think it is not fair that I should be judged for what somebody else did. Or, if we're willing to grant that all humanity is in solidarity, that we are all in Adam, we don't like the idea that we didn't get to choose who would represent us. That that flies against our Western thinking as well. If I'm going to be charged with his sin, it seems as if I should have had a, a part to say in who is going to represent me. We believe that we would have made a better choice than Adam. In truth, the idea that God deals with us in and through our representative is actually very good news. If we had to represent ourselves on the day of judgment before God, we would be in big trouble. We would have no defense at all. Since it is self-evident 
that we commit many sins every day. Whether you agree that you're in Adam or not, and whether his sin is, is, is your sin, you, you have to agree if you are going to live in reality at all that you commit sins, many sins, every day. But the good news is is that God has given us a representative to stand in our stead. This idea of solidarity, of representative headship works both ways. Look at verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. See, Paul says that Jesus came as a second Adam. And He came to do what Adam did not do. In fact, He came to do what Adam could not do. Paul draws a parallel between Adam and Jesus, but then after he makes that parallel, he spends the whole rest of the chapter showing how Jesus and and Adam are different. Adam brought death into the world. Verse 15, But Jesus brings the grace of God into the world. Adam's one sin brought condemnation. But Jesus' sacrifice on the cross brought justification. Verse 16. Uh, Because of Adam's one sin, death reigns over humanity. But much more will those who receive the abundance and grace of the one free gift of the righteous reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Grace, life reigns through Him. And then he summarizes what he's been saying in verse 18. If you want to understand verses 12 through 21, or 12 through 18, uh, verse 18 is a good summary. Therefore, as one trespass, led to condemnation for all men. So one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. And what was that one act of righteousness? Jesus going to the cross, becoming sin for us, paying our debts, standing in our stead as our representative, as our representative head, as our Savior and dying in our place. And so, this representative headship works both ways. And then in verses 20 and 21, Paul uh, returns to a familiar theme. He's already raised it at least twice in the book of Romans. When he says, Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The reason he returns to this theme about the law is he knows that no matter how many times he says it, fallen man is going to try and earn their own salvation. That people are going to try by their obedience to the law things that they can be justified before God. But what Paul is saying here is that God, in His great love for us, He's multiplying sin. He sent 
He, he installed the law through Moses in order that we might have this great big mirror to see ourselves reflected in the law. And in seeing ourselves, see how far short we fall of God's true righteousness. He multiplied sin so that we could see it better. So that we would more quickly and earnestly flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. The holy, holy, holy God multiplied sin so that we could see our sin and need of a Savior. Is that not love? And then as he works this out, in verse 19, we just, or, or verse 20, we don't get the real sense of it in the English. It says, now when the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, and sin has increased greatly because of the law. We sin a whole lot more because God put in place the Ten Commandments than we otherwise would have. We would still be sinners. Paul's argument, and I didn't make a big deal of this at the beginning, but Paul's argument is we know that sin is in, is in the world because death is in the world. Uh, even before the law was given. Otherwise, death would not be happening. But he, he added the law to make sin so great. But then in verse 20, he is saying that God's grace is infinitely greater than all our multiplied sins. Now, the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded. Really, the, the, the translation in the Greek would be better that it superabounded and overflowed. I mean, it is so much grace that it can't be contained that there's no uh, container that can keep it. It's just full and overflowing is the, the uh, sense of the Hebrew, I mean, of the Greek. God's grace super abounded. What does this mean? This means that uh, Adam, uh, when he when he was in the garden, and I think I made the point last week that I may need to change this week. I said, when you come to Jesus Christ, when you are justified in His grace and in His righteousness, that it's just like you're in, in, the, in the Garden of Eden and have never sinned. I think I said that in the sermon last week. I've got to change that. I was wrong. Because when you come to Jesus Christ, it is better than if you were in the garden. It is better than if you had never sinned. Uh, Adam, before he fell, was righteous in the sight of God, but he was still under the possibility of becoming unrighteous. And so he did become unrighteous. He sinned against God. But you, who are in Jesus Christ, you, who are covered by His righteousness, um, you are beyond the possibility of becoming unrighteous like Adam did. You are beyond the possibility of being removed from God's presence. This is the grace of the Gospel. This is what it mean, what Paul means when he says that our sin abounded, but God's grace superabounded and overflowed infinitely more than our sins. I want to conclude. Um, first of all, three points. Uh, this, idea, this Western worldview... Um, we live in a world where death reigns. 
this idea of us being individuals who can lift us ourselves up by our bootstraps as Western individuals who are only responsible to ourselves and we can do whatever we set our mindset uh, mind to, uh, death uh, punctures that entire view. Death is in the world because we'd never be able to rescue ourselves. We need to be rescued. Um, but death does not have the last word. God's superabundant, overflowing grace is the last word. And then my last, um, my last point actually looks forward to uh, next week. Verse 17. He, he said something here, and you say, Paul, you said something pretty incredible, but you didn't expand upon it. In verse 17, look with me. For if, by the, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life. He's saying we are going to reign in life. What does that mean? We'll find out in Romans 6, 7, and 8. Let's pray together. Father, Paul says that we will reign in life. And we haven't yet um, looked at Romans 6, 7, and 8 to see exactly what that means. But Lord, we know that we uh, that we have life that is abundant, that is super abundant, that will never ever be taken away from us, that we stand in a better position than Adam before he fell, because not because of ourselves, but because of Jesus Christ our Lord. And I pray that You would strengthen um, the souls of Your people as they contemplate Your superabounding grace for them. And Father, if there are some who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, I pray that You would draw them powerfully to Yourself. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.